Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Episode 73 of The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sun. 73 episodes old. I wonder if we'll get a letter from the Queen for our 100th birthday. I imagine so. 73 is such a like dull age for you to make this statement. It just feels, you know, three score and ten. What does that mean? That's how, in the Bible it says that's how long every... A human will live. 70. Good Catholic girl, Pandora? Yeah, no, I'm definitely. <laughs> I have two very important things to tell you. Firstly, a bird shat on me last night. Which is fantastic news. What, where did it shit on you? I heard this massive splat and I thought that someone had spat at me, such as life in London. <laughs> and then I realised it had pooed onto my epaulette. I have like a, I have a jacket that has like literally suede... Uh, was it a beloved and jacket? It's fine, I wiped that off, but I was convinced there was more somewhere. And then I sat down on the tube and I realised where the rest of it had gone. Oh no. Inside my shirt. Oh no. <laughs> Here's a moral maze for you. Would you prefer for a stranger to have spat on you or a bird to have shat on you? A bird to have shat on me. It's not very personal. Bird would shit on anyone. If someone spits at you... I don't think you should speak for the bird. You don't know it may have had a bit of an agenda. It's apparently very good luck. Secondly, my other bit of news for you that's also very important, I had my first filling last week. How did you find it? Well, not to get all William Blake on you, but I felt like I lost some innocence. Mm. I know, I actually do know what you mean. Because I'd had, I was so proud of my perfect dental record, and then Mm. I had a child, apparently this happens quite a lot, and your teeth go to shit. Why do your teeth go to shit when you have Like you lose a lot of calcium. God, they really do fuck everything up, don't they? But the slightly embarrassing thing is it took so much anaesthetic. I was like a horse who could not be felled. We were there for days with him giving me extra plunges. <laughs> and my half my face was numb for about eight hours afterwards, and it's meant to be two hours. Wow. I think I had a triple shot. What did it feel like? I honestly kept on going, sorry, I'm like a horse. <laughs> Um, just extraordinary, just numb for, for absolutely yonks. Also, just a quick correction, me making that joke about how babies fuck everything up. I'm not trying to put anyone off having children. You did last week. The glory and miracle of life is a wonderful and beautiful thing. Okay. All you did last week is tell people not to have children. Oh my God, no I didn't. <laughs> In other news this week, the journalist Scarlett Curtis, who has curated and published a fantastic book of essays on feminism... Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies. Which you have contributed to. Which I have. I'm really looking forward to reading it. It's, a, um, it's had a lot of press and it has had some great people writing for it, including Kira Knightley, who wrote a very visceral essay on childbirth, which I've seen has been picked up by lots of news outlets. Anyway, do carry on. Well, Scarlett faced the embodiment of white male oppressive power head 
on in the last week when Philip Green ordered the pop-up store that she'd organised and been given space for on the Oxford Circus top shop floor to be dismantled. Rumour has it that Philip Green took one look at the stand and immediately ordered it to be taken down. Bye total coincidence, I'm going to present the information that Feminists Don't Wear Pink was published by the exact same publisher who released a fairly disparaging book last year called Damaged Goods, The Inside Story of Sir Philip Green. And that was written by Oliver Shaw at the Sunday Times, I think. And Philip Green has been very vocal about how much he hates Oliver Shaw since. Philip Green is never on the shop floor. How on earth would he have got wind of a relatively small fry, like brilliant, but Mm. small fry installation? I think the Arcadia offices are all in that building and I've heard he is a megalomaniac. I've heard he's one he of does, those. He does, he goes around the shop floors. I don't know if he does that, but I've heard... 20 that. minutes it took for it to be taken down. Yeah, apparently she was asked to... This has, I have to say, this has not come from Scarlett. This is, so, yeah, this is all say, stuff we've read. This is stuff that we've read and <clears> stuff that we've heard. She was asked to take a step outside and get a breath of fresh air and she came back in and it was gone. Topshop paid 25000 to charity after it went public. I can't find what charity it was to. Girl Up. Girl Up, mm. right, because lots of news publications just covered it. And whenever people say, oh, I donated this to charity, I think charity, do- what does that mean? Mm. It's a catch-all, catch-all term. I think it's really unfair that everything he does as one man infects the whole brand. It's happened before with decisions he's made. And Topshop is filled with wonderful women, many of whom I've worked with before. And it's yeah, so unfair that it just is so synonymous with him as this singular entity. Yeah, I, I think from everything that I've read about him and know about him secondhand, I just think he's a I just think he's a gangster and a bully and I think the 25 grand thing annoyed me so much because it's such a metaphor for where we've been for such a long time which is powerful men thinking they can shut women up by just throwing enough money at them I think it's totally appalling Scarlett started the hashtag pink not green I saw that. which is great in protest where she gained an enormous amount of support and actually if anything I think it's done even more great press for a truly brilliant book so thank you very much Philip Green and that book is available to buy now I mean, I agree. I think it got a ton of press, mm. so it, it's had some pretty good adverse effects. Well, it's the it's the message of it in action, isn't it? So yeah. it's kind of you almost couldn't write it. Yeah, poetic. Yeah, exactly. I ripped out a piece of news that I think you'll like, Dolly. It is drenched in nostalgia. I'm um, surprised it's not damp. No, is it this like... advert for a roast chicken at M and S now three pounds fifty? Care home that lets people live in the past. Oh my God, I'm going to cry. <laughs> Viewed from the busy main road, Five Ways Nursing Home in Bingley doesn't look special. Just another modern development backing onto the railway line to Leeds. Go down the drive, however, and it's clear there is something rather unusual about the place. An old red phone box gives the first clue. It's rotary telephone demanding one shilling for a local call. So they set up a kind of nostalgic high street for their patients. Oh, I love this. Is it for people who have dementia? I, I didn't get that far. Or is it more just people who... Yes, it says here, we embrace the era many of our residents think they are living in. Oh my God, isn't that amazing? I feel so moved by that. I, I think that's like so wonderful. Where is it? Five Ways Nursing Home in Bingley. Well done, Five Ways Nursing Home. What a creative and, and brilliant and compassionate thing to do for your residents. Glad you liked it. Thank you. You know me so well. (laughs) You know all the stuff that's going to get me going. In less cute news, Brett Kavanagh is in 51 to 49, which, to paraphrase a tweet which was going viral over the weekend, I hope is frustrating enough evidence 
for why so many women choose not to go through the ordeal of reliving and declaring the trauma of sexual abuse on record in a courtroom. The whole thing is fucking bonkers. I truly thought that even if they didn't believe that there was any substance to these claims, that the Republicans would think, let's sack this off. There are other judges. This dude is more trouble than he's worth. But Donald Trump stuck his feet in and apologised to Kavanaugh on behalf of America which is particularly brutal, and called Dr. Blasey Ford's accusations a hoax. Meanwhile, Donald Trump Jr., thick as two short planks, said, Me too makes me more scared for my sons than my daughters. What ho, this insanity. I think people are in shock that despite Trump saying the FBI investigated Kavanaugh seven times, neither Dr. Blasey Ford nor Kavanaugh himself were actually interviewed. I literally can't get my head around that. What's the point of an investigation without the accuser and the Mm. accused Mm. being investigated? It's just nuts. Surely at least wait to elect him until they've been interviewed and we've had a trial. As my husband pointed out, it's not the same as being tried and not found guilty because at least justice, as decreed by our judicial system, whether or not we agree with the jury's decision would have been served. And that's what's so odd about it. There's not even an attempt to assuage or follow protocol at all. It's just blanket ignoring of silly frilly women and their silly frilly claims the response as you say has been seismic I'm not in the habit of calling out my other work on this podcast but I don't think there was a better day for a piece I wrote on female anger to come out in Sunday Times style I mean I wrote it in the summer um, but it came out on Sunday and literally just before I posted the piece on my Instagram US Vogue magazine a magazine with a staggering 20 million Instagram followers posted a picture of a protester in a handmaid's tail handmaid's outfit with a holding a sign that said you thought we were angry before. Anyway, I've come up with a new hashtag and it's uh, me who. I saw that. I thought it was very apt. I also saw a tweet that I thought was such a good way to respond to this horrible piece of news, which was a suggestion of writing Dr. Christine Ford a thank you letter, thanking her for her bravery and acknowledging her account as truth. If you put Dr. Christine Ford letter into Twitter's search function, you'll see the address that everyone is suggesting. It's by care of the Palo Alto University. I just thought that was such a helpful, comforting way to to channel our anger. And I just thought about how much comfort it would bring to a woman who must be feeling so frustrated. Amy Schumer and Emily Ratajkowski were arrested for protesting inside the Senate office buildings, which is illegal. Although there's been a bit of a hoo-ha on that front. And I found this really interesting as I do sometimes think we're in danger of all becoming a bit worthy women fighting the great fight about this and and we aren't worthy women we're just women with our eyes open and there's a difference but basically someone named at benny johnson he writes for the conservative news website the daily caller tweeted in response to emily when she said that she was arrested for protesting I watched the cops walk up to you and ask politely if you wanted to be arrested. You and Amy Schumer said yes. Then you both just sat comfortably on the floor until the police gave you special wristbands and escorted you out. Now, that's a pretty patronising tweet, but it is also quite funny as Mm. it does recast this in a slightly less maverick light. Mm. And that's okay. It's still meaningful behaviour. It's still brilliant that they went to a protest. They're women in the public eye. But it's not, you know, throwing yourself in front of a horse. And I think there's now some disagreement between the tweeter of the above, Benny, and Amy herself. But it's not without a memo to us all, I think, in how we recount our activism or even altruism. And I'm 
definitely guilty, don't get me wrong, of adding flair to my stories. Oh, I'm Mrs. Flair. Can you imagine how Mrs. I would have... Flair. Can you imagine how I would have retold that story? <laughs> there would have been horses. I think that's very interesting, and I definitely think it's a symptom of our time. I think it's hard to deduce what is altruism and what is performative. And they were for both. Yeah, but performative I Performative altruism. But I also think, does it really matter? I don't, yeah, true. I don't know if it does. I think it's still powerful for young girls to know the women they follow and admire on social media and through their work are being arrested for the cause of human rights. I don't really care if they've exaggerated it or they've made, they've told it Or they wear pillows. Or, <laughs> or they were, or, you know, the police gave them some biscuits and a cup of tea. I don't really care, to be honest. No, I think that's a really good point. Speaking of social media, I think we're living through a real moment here in the way that politics and social media intersect and coalesce and influence each other. Taylor Swift broke her political silence this week, which was considered momentous, as she's arguably the most famous pop star on the planet. Actually, would you say she is? Or do you think Rihanna or Beyonce trump her? How, How many years do you think we've been close friends now? About four? I love that you still think that I might be an authority. <laughs> I just who, want to know your opinion. On who might be the biggest pop star in the world. But, okay, in your non-authoritative... <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry, in my non-authoritative way, yeah, probably Taylor Smith. Sorry, Taylor Smith. Taylor Smith. Okay, she's called Taylor Swift. Anyway, people were very frustrated that Taylor Swift hadn't used her platform before to talk about politics. A lot of people presumed her to be a Trump voter. Mm. It was a really interesting, thorough caption, actually, and I shall read it. I'm writing this post about the upcoming midterm elections on November 6th, in which I'll be voting in the state of Tennessee. In the past, I've been reluctant to publicly voice my political opinions, but due to several events in my life and in the world in the past two years, I feel very differently about that now. I always have and always will cast my vote based on which candidate will protect and fight for the human rights I believe we all deserve in this country. I believe in the fight for LGBTQ rights and that any form of discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender is wrong. I believe that the systemic racism we still see in this country towards people of colour is terrifying, sickening and prevalent. I cannot vote for someone who will not be willing to fight for dignity for all Americans no matter their skin colour, gender or who they love. Running for Senate in the state of Tennessee is a woman named Marsha Blackburn. As much as I have in the past and would like to continue voting for women in office, I cannot support Marsha Blackburn. Her voting record in Congress appalls and terrifies me. She voted against equal pay for women. She voted against the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act which attempts to protect women from domestic violence, stalking and date rape. She believes businesses have a right to refuse service to gay couples. She believes that they should not have right to marry. And then she goes on to talk about who she does want to vote for. I think that that cannot be underestimated, the power of that Instagram Mm. message. Mm. Why do you think she's doing it now? Because I think, as she said, she's had several things that have happened in her life. Remember the case about the DJ that Mm. groped her and she won that historic $1? The world has changed a lot in the last few years. I think she's weathered a lot as a pop star. She's gone completely underground, hasn't she, for the last... Yeah, allegedly living in North London with her actor boyfriend. I think the world and her life has changed a lot and she has realised that maybe not only should she put something out there, but that she wants to. That sounds like a woman that cares deeply about politics. Where in North London do you reckon she's living? Am I going to see her in the Sainsbury's on Camden Road? I feel like she might be around there, actually. Do you? 
I'm not pursuing this line of conversation. I read a couple of tweets collated by Twitter in their rather handy moments section, which I thought were also very interesting. Ashley Elise Edwards, who is the news and politics editor at Refinery29, tweeted, all jokes aside, what Taylor Swift just did is extremely important. Let's not forget, 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. Having someone like Swift, who has a massive fan base, come out against a Trump darling candidate like Marsha Blackburn is monumental in many ways. And Sean Tandon tweeted, sign of pop culture shifting even further left. In 2016, Taylor Swift, who enjoys a fan base in red America, was conspicuously silent on how she voted. Now she is appalled and terrified by Republican Blackburn. Yeah, see, that's something that went through my mind because part of me thinks she's still, you know, she's still only 28. Robin Wilder, the journalist, tweeted the other day saying, I can't believe that Taylor Swift is still only 28. I feel like she's lived a million lives through my lifetime. And I think we forget that about her. And I have to say, there are a number of things that I won't talk about publicly at the moment, like big kind of social and political issues, because I'm still working through my thoughts on it. And I think she has every right as as someone going through their 20s to be chewing stuff over and, and kind of ruminating on things before she publicly declares something and then that's used as a yardstick forever of her character and morality. We've talked about it before, haven't we? How how much kind of political onus should we put on our pop stars? Like, should they be kind of answerable to everything? And it always brings to mind for me that Eva Wiseman piece when she interviewed Little Mix and they just seemed so tired yeah. and so stressed and she yeah. was like... Steps never had this. <laughs> totally. But then another part of me thinks maybe she, maybe it is that she's just been absorbing the world and watching things unfold and reading a lot and before she kind of declares, you know, nails her colour to the flag. But another part of me thinks, well, she was kind of conflated with Redneck America as a kind of country yeah, singer for a long time. I think there was a lot of, I have to say, I thought it was ludicrous last year that because of her kind of slightly oddly aesthetically perfect white girl squad that she, she somehow got conflated with like Trumpian values racism and yeah. some of the think pieces I read were pretty nuts to be no, honest and it, actually deeply unfair no I completely agree but I wonder if as the commentator you just mentioned I wonder if there was a question of not alienating yeah. that listenership yeah around the last election. Times have changed, know. she has changed, the way we use social media has changed, mm. a lot has changed mm. in her career. But I think it's I think it's great that I think um, it's great. That, that she put out that caption and yeah. it's very, very women orientated, women's rights orientated and I really like that. The only good thing about Trump's behaviour of the last week was when he walked the entire way up the stairs to his Air Force One jet on Friday, waving to his fans as he went with a stringy piece of bog roll on the bottom of the sole of his shoe. Oh, how satisfying. And not a single aide rushed up behind him and whipped it <laughs> off. It traversed the entire way with him. That was quite satisfying to watch. So thanks, Trump. And another video I loved is, have you seen him trying to pronounce something? No. There's a video, Ollie keeps doing it to me, where he's been compared to a uh, pussycat, where he tries to say something, he just goes, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> And there's actually a video you can watch from just go over and over again. It's been turned into a meme. So the idea is that you say to your cat, hi, baby. And the cat goes back like, I just hisses at you. Can't do it without spitting everywhere. Ollie does it to me every day now. And I'm like, oh, what time will you be home tonight? He just does that really odd sort of Trump hiss out of me. 
That's exactly what I'm going to watch the minute that's recorded. You will, you'll love that video. Have you got any warm and fuzzies to offer up this week? <laughs> Pandora, please say you have a warm and fuzzy. I do have a warm and fuzzy. Bringing in the warm and fuzzies, thank God, are Michelle and Barack Obama with their public postings to each other in celebration of 26 years of marriage. Happy anniversary, Michelle Obama. For 26 years, you've been an extraordinary partner, someone who can always make me laugh and my favourite person to see the world with, Aww. tweeted Barack. She responded by thanking him for 26 plus years of love, trust and respect and for being a man who always lifts up and honours me and our wonderful girls. I'm heavily invested in that. I think a lot of people are. Heavily invested. <laughs> the Oxford English Dictionary has added 1,400 new words to its hallowed pages. My personal favourite is the English Philippine adjective bonga, borrowed from Tagalog, which means flamboyant, impressive, stylish or excellent. You're pretty bonga. Thank you very much. <laughs> I absolutely love this time of year. I, I think we should do a high-low episode, actually. I would love that. It's All so right. interesting, the evolution of language. I, you know, I get so... There's always some prissy person who's up in arms about the fact that the OED has suddenly incorporated that... The old that prescriptives. Bears sick, you know, means brilliant for teenagers. I think it's great. This is like the the excitement and the evolution and the mutation of, of and the magic of language. We keep adding and borrowing. I think it's so exciting. David Crystal, I think, would have some uh, words to say on that. My favourite new bit of slang to be admitted is nothing burger, which I wasn't familiar with before the OED ushered it in, I can't deny, but it means something that appears valuable but actually has no substance. It's my latest favourite insult. It's a really good one because it's actually really horrible. I thought you were something great, but actually you are empty of meaning, devoid of substance, and you are merely the air left behind by the gherkin. Wow, that is hard to come back from. Did you like the story of the Banksy shredding itself? I have to say I didn't, actually. I finally just lost my temper a bit with Banksy there. <laughs> the artist built a shredder into his Girl with a Lost Balloon, which sold for over a million at Sotheby's. And as it did, as the uh, sale went down, it moved down the frame and threw a shredder that he had built in a few years ago, should it ever be sold. He posted the video on his own Instagram with the caption, going, going, gone. I think he's a bit of a genius. I am desperate, along with the rest of the world, to know who he is. Should we get him on the high-low? Should we be up for it? I mean, there's absolutely no way he would be up for it. <laughs> the most and the art world is mental is that when it shred itself it immediately and reportedly added another million onto the value but then apparently another Banksy art owner got excited and shredded his own Banksy artwork and now it's worth a pound so that's a risky move do you know what I thought when I saw that video childish honestly I didn't I didn't love the shredder did you I just felt I don't know I think I I I felt so clever Banksy is that clever I don't know Maybe I don't understand art. I just think I felt such great sympathy for the people who would have been working very hard to support and sell his work and make him a fortune for whom undoubtedly... No, but it's still a piece of... I think this is interesting. I think you're maybe missing the point that it's still a piece of artwork. It's a different piece of artwork now. But how stressful for the people that are working for him. I do, and also it doesn't... It's the admin side that's causing you But grief. also, what's the statement that it's what's showing there's meaning in nothing? I just... Yeah, I, probably. Well, that's bollocks, because allegedly it's going to add another million on. I just don't think it's like a very... 
like potent I think action likes, of anarchy when it's I, hanging in Sotheby's and it's still going to make him a shit ton load of money. I think what he likes doing, and I would say he does do pretty effectively, is expose the hypocrisy of the world, the modern world that we live in. So um, I would say he proved that point pretty well, that when it's sold, he shredded it and it doubled in value. If, if that doesn't expose the hypocrisy of the art world slash popular culture now, what does? But people are getting quite overexcited as they've identified a man in glasses who filmed the video that Banksy put up on his Instagram. They worked out who it was from the angle he was filming on his phone via CCTV in in Sotheby's. Obviously, people are now desperate to know who the man in glasses is so that they can see if they can work out via his connections who the artist is. I think you're just more arty than I am. I'm not remotely arty. I think I'm more one of those people that... Who paints their own art and hangs it above their bed. Who has... She does do that, Who has prints on their walls saying things like, live, dance, love. Oh, that's like Ollie. Um, I always say that Ollie should have a basic room where in it he has that framed poster from Friends, you know, the black and white picture of all the men yes. sitting on a crane. And yeah. then he'd have, like, a stool made from crushed Coca-Cola cans. <laughs> That's the most withering put-down from you. <laughs> Maybe a lava lamp. Actually, no, lava lamp's quite cool. Ye old mailbag was a total joy this week, wasn't it? You sent me some wonderful letters from listeners. Do you want to read out some of the it highlights? Was, it was bulging and joyous. Um, it feels so... <laughs> like phallic? <laughs> um, it, feels... it was bulging and joyous. It was. We really enjoyed. We got so many emails in response to um, last week's episode, and we really enjoyed reading them. It feels like Farah Store's comments really hit a nerve and sparked a conversation about having it all. Hi Pandora and Dolly, love the discussion today about having it all. I'm 37, I have a lovely four-year-old daughter, a husband, a house and an interesting job in a school. I also get paid more than my husband and have probably more potential for career development. I think the great unsaid in this discussion is how many children you have. I can manage everything because I have one child. My daughter is four. I get a lot of when is the next one comments. Eva Wiseman actually wrote a very good piece about that. If I had another child, we couldn't afford for me to work full time as I live in outer London and teachers' salaries have not kept up with inflation. I could not afford for both to be in childcare. I find it saddening that people do not want to talk about compromises. Mm. Yes, one child might be a compromise for some, but life is made of compromises. People should be open rather than feeling that commenting on others' choices justifies their own. We are lucky to make choices if we have them and should celebrate that. Very interesting email. Yeah, I thought it was such an interesting way to... to, A a new way to look at that Mm -hmm. argument. Here's another one we got. Dear Dolly and Pandora, I found myself furiously nodding along to the section on women having it all. Last year, when my son was about to turn two, I experienced a very physical reaction to my also subconscious attempts to have it all. David Sedaris once wrote of the four hobs of life, health, family, friends and work, and that only two or three of those hobs can be burning at one time before it all gets too much and something boils over. I love that. I know. As such, something will always be neglected. In my case, late 2017, it was my health. I was working hard, trying to prove myself as an editor in advertising and also working a ridiculous amount as a freelance writer. I was trying to see my friends as much as I had done pre-baby. I was trying to be a good mum and partner and it was my health that suffered. I had heart palpitations and they got so bad, I went to see a cardiologist completely panicked. It was, thank goodness, nothing too serious, but clearly a result of the stress that I was putting myself under. After that, I was forced to take a step back. Note, it took a warning from a cardiologist to do it and have since felt much healthier and happier. 
but my notion that a woman with a baby is somehow meant to do as much as a woman without is something I think about a lot because it is ingrained into me that if I don't, I'm somehow failing as a woman. I'm so thankful for your honesty. It's something we women should be talking about more. Oh, that's a brilliant letter. Um, and I can identify with lots of that. Thank you very much for plunging into the bulging, bulging. joyous mailbag. God, you know, you've got some sexual frustration bubbling under that t-shirt, don't you? Thank you, Pandora. I actually sparked a really interesting conversation with my mum when I went home because I always think... Oh, Babsy. With Babsy. Um, because I always think of my mum as the poster girl for the woman that had it all. Yeah. And the way you talk about her yeah. and the, the business she ran and how soon she went back to work after having you and that you lived in a small flat and I know a, a lot about your early <laughs> days. <laughs> uh, but she said to me, she remembers some, my dad saying to her, well, look at you, Barbara, you've got it all. And my mum said... Yeah, like, I'm the perfect mother, apparently. I'm the perfect wife, apparently. I'm the perfect employee, apparently. And I've lost myself. I don't know who I am, and I don't know what makes me happy. And she said she it's on a surface level, yes, ostensibly, she did have it all, but she just felt hollowed out inside. It was just it's something that she's never spoken to me about before. I was about to say, had you ever had a conversation about that before? Not really. And I, I oh, think... it's great that the episode sparked that kind of conversation I think very often and my god I am guilty of this when we talk to our parents we only ever talk to them in the capacity of that like because we don't know them in any other capacity they're just our mum yeah exactly. exactly so that's nice that you had a conversation with her actually where you really parked yeah and I think it was it was so t- as I know it's really tough for our generation still and it's sad that this is a problem that has been transgenerational but my god women of the 80s I think it was really really a big pressure on them yeah, I'd say the difference is though, and I know this sounds really facetious and probably quite trivial, but I think that it is actually much more of a pressure than it sounds on paper, is we are now so much more social than our parents ever were. My mum finds it agree. total madness yeah. how much we're all meant to keep up with the baby showers and the christenings and the dinners. And how friends should be like and, family connections. Yeah. And the endless, 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 endless meetings for work, meetings about meetings about meetings. You know, it's it, you are on all the time. And my mum finds that really weird. Yeah. And that, so that's that is a new pressure. That that's we, a new pressure. Yeah. yeah. And arguably a funner one. But a roads, definitely mm. a roads. Mm. What have you been enjoying this week, Pandora? I watched Stacey Dooley's documentary, Fashion's Dirty Secrets, for the BBC, on Monday evening. She's currently on Strictly, isn't she? She is. She's also done a very, very good episode of Table Manners with Jessie Ware, if you're a Stacey Dooley fan. She's absolutely having a moment. The fashion industry is the second largest polluter in the world. And as we know, the faster-than-fast fashion and the Friday night dress, a cultural phenomenon that sees girls log on to boohoo.com and the such, like, mm. every every Thursday to buy a £9.99 dress to wear on Friday night, you know, just to wear it once or twice and then discard it, is wreaking havoc on the planet. It was a really interesting documentary. She travelled um, to kind of all parts of the supply chain, had lots of conversations. The only conversation she didn't have, couldn't have, tried desperately to have was conversations with every single retailer no one would talk to her even when they were at the Copenhagen summit which is a big sustainability um summit that happens they still wouldn't talk to her even though they were all there for the same goal I do wish they focused more on the cultural side of consumerism and how we are now socialised from a young age into what I like to call if I have itis, where something new will change your identity at some formative level. Did you create um, that phrase? Yeah, I just made it up. It's very good. 
I, I definitely suffer from that. Thank you. I'd like to have seen more investigation into why we are driven to shop the way we are now, this kind of mass accumulation and why we now need women like Marie Kondo to come and declutter our lives. God, that's so true. You should write a piece about this, about how Stop. we've had to go from one extremity to another. I haven't thought of that. up a little in my essay. No, that's such a good social observation, I think. Well, I'd be really interested to see more investigation of that, why we've come to rely on that and why we so depend on the ability of the new to lift our spirits. And another angle, I mean, it's only one documentary. I'm not, this isn't a criticism. It's just something I'd have liked to see more of investigated. It's the class angle I think could have been explored more. So I think, you know, middle class, economically, middle class people can smell some stinky water um, next to a factory and go, God, how disgusting. I can't believe that's meant to be drinking water and make a decision based on that knowledge. But many people living on the poverty line can't do that. They can't make choices based on that stinky water because they don't have the time or the fiscal resources to shop any other way than those very cheap places. And I do think we shouldn't forget those people. And I always say that sustainability right now is a luxury until corporations and retailers and companies go away and do it for us whilst keeping the price the same it is a choice that a lot of people can't afford to make for example I pay considerably more money for biodegradable baby wipes I think they're twice the price if not more I can make that choice lots of other people can't and so on and so forth I know I know why you do that it's because of the fat burger, isn't it Oh, God, I do think of that fat burger. I think about the fat burger. The glistening, sweating fat burger. I I think that's how people feel on a hangover. Or a fat burg. Fat burg. Fat burg. Yeah, you're getting confused with a nothing burger. Do you remember when... Fat burg's a good insult as well. Do you remember when we... (laughs) Do you remember when we read that news piece about how there was a bit of fat to go and see it? Yeah, on 22 feet long. I think we should have actually, because it was a powerful... That stayed with me, that fatberg. I might go... It wasn't the whole fatberg wasn't on display. It was was just a morsel of it. We should have gone and seen it, Give me the whole fatberg. Give me the whole burger. So that documentary tied in with a brilliant piece. I don't know if it was a coincidence or not, that I read by Jess Cartner-Morley, the fashion editor of The Guardian, in The Guardian magazine this weekend. And she really tapped into something that I used to struggle with as a newspaper fashion columnist, a job I loved and a position I was very honoured to hold, incidentally which is that you are constantly promoting shopping, the spending of money, the excess, the waste, the strain on the planet, the idea of having something new. To be fair, a lot of people open a fashion magazine because they want to shop, they want to know what to buy, and you, as the journalist, are there to serve them in that regard, or you're not doing your job. And equally, there's a logistical issue in that you can't buy vintage clothing. or or more than one piece of the vintage clothing that's being advertised. So whilst I wore a lot of vintage and wear a lot of vintage in real life, I couldn't feature it in my column because that wasn't providing the service that I needed to provide to my readers. But Jess has ripped up the rule book and she says that she's going to be mixing in vintage with old bits from her wardrobe and a few new bits in each look that you can buy. And I think that's setting a really great mandate. It's releasing the journalists from this onus that everything they do has to be serviceable in a in a fiscal and consumable sense and it's also breaking that cycle of how you consume fashion journalism you don't have to be able to buy everything you see well, it's about creativity and vision rather and inspiration. than shopping yeah and style tips and in fact i think if it breaks the urge to suddenly shop but keeps you thinking and dreaming and looking and hunting for something that's no bad thing yeah, the hunt for me is is the best part of buying something I try and maintain what Jess was talking about as a subtext now in any style stories I do for Man Repeller or even what I put out via my own Instagram so that the balance is part vintage, part my own wardrobe and part new stuff you can buy. So hopefully Jess is the first 
with many to herald in a new a new era in mm. that sense Something else I absolutely adored this week is a book called Notes on a Nervous Planet by Matt Hay. Oh, it's great, that book. I've been marking copious pages with post-it notes. The book came out earlier this year. Did you read it when it first came out? Yeah, I interviewed um, Matt about it at a literary festival. It's, it's such a good book. It, that was one of the main reasons I decided to take all of August off social Why media. Why you throw it at my head? Sorry, I should have done. Well, he wrote it, as you know, but maybe some of our listeners won't, <laughs> off the back of the hugely successful book How to Stay Alive about his battle with depression, which I haven't read yet, have you? Yes, yes, yeah, beautiful. I want to read that. One reviewer said of this book that it gilded the lily of anxiety, which I think just underestimates how much gilding there is in anxiety. You gild and you gild and you gild your anxiety some more. Mm-hmm. That's what anxiety is. You don't just stop at, say a moderate level of anxiety. Otherwise, we'd, we'd all be much better was at managing the, it. Was that the Times review? I'm not sure, actually. I can't remember. I just read it and thought, how interesting this is the problem we have. Mm. Is, is, oh, God, this gets a bit boring. Now, yeah, anxiety is very boring. Yeah, anyway, there, there was a very one very shitty review, which I think was from the Times, which I think should 100% be ignored when reading about this book, because I found it, as uh, I'm sure you did, such a poignant comment yes. on on how we need to start looking at, yeah, how we need to start looking at the effect of modern life on on anxiety. Well, Matt says that it is not sex that sells, it is fear. And that with a constant bad news cycle, now we don't need to imagine the worst catastrophes, we can see them. So I thought that was really important. And I just wanted to read a bit that made me laugh that I think will resonate with a lot of people. Worry is a small, sweet word that sounds like you could keep an eye on it. Yet worry about the future, the next 10 minutes, the next 10 years, is the chief obstacle I have for being able to live in and appreciate the present moment. I am a catastrophizer. I don't simply worry, no. My worry has real ambition. My worry is limitless. My anxiety, even when I don't have capital A anxiety, is big enough to go anywhere. I have always found it easy to think of the worst case scenario and dwell on it. I thought that was a great passage. Mm. I think he's such an important writer for our time, Matt Haig. Me too. Bit of a uh, philosopher as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I've been binging on Sorry for Your Loss, a series about a young woman played by Elizabeth Olsen who is grieving the death of her husband. Curveball, it's on Facebook Watch. Oh, I have never watched anything. Nor had I. New streaming platform, free. Mm -mm. Watch out Netflix and Hulu and all the other things. Oh god, that's what every company's going to end up doing, isn't it? The only downside is I had to log on to Facebook for the first time in six months to watch it, which was a bit of a boon. Um, <laughs> as I mean, you're off Facebook now, aren't you? Yeah. So you'd have to log on to mine to watch it. Did you open three million messages no, from I people saying, come it. to my birthday drinks in I Pimlico? I completely ignored it, but I didn't even really like being on it. It's not, it's not a platform for me anymore. No. Except clearly now it is, because I'm back watching... Uh, Facebook watch. So Facebook have been dropping an episode a week for eight, the last eight weeks or so, ending last week. But I wanted to wait until they were all out so that I could watch them. Our old friend, Stuart Heritage, called it the small-scale critical darling of the moment in The Guardian. And Vanity Fair called Elizabeth Olsen's performance revelatory. So it's had high praise. What I loved about this series is that Elizabeth Olsen, by her own admission, plays a 
bitch. At one point she concedes that this is a dirty word with a dirty history, but at another point that she is being one regardless. She's furiously grieving, or grieving furiously, and nothing and no one is going to make her feel better about the fact that her husband is dead, despite the fact that he died 3.5 months ago, and people think that she might be now, you know, kind of okay. Spoiler, she's not, unsurprisingly. I haven't watched something like this before. The, the slow burn of grief, the anger, the how bitchy it makes you because of how furious you are, the unpopularity of grief, mm. the boredom of grief. It feels really prescient. It's just last week I was talking about a piece I loved on grief by Alice Edwards for Porter magazine. And I feel like, honestly, armed with that piece that Alice wrote and this series where Elizabeth and various other characters are so brilliant, I understand a bit more as someone who has never had a major tragedy that's me touching wood I understand a bit more about grief and the nuance of it yeah and also I think more and more professionals and artists alike are questioning this five stages that we've been told is the prescriptive journey of grief and questioning whether that's correct and overwhelmingly I think people realise it's not and it's it's such a different beast So the five stages person. that you are acknowledging is when you move through sadness and denial. Uh, denial yeah. yeah. She, the thing is, is all of those are part of the series but what is different is she doesn't move through a stage, complete yeah. it and then enter the next. She's got mm. like all the stages mm. sort of at once or one might be stronger on one day than the other. You will really like it so log on with my Facebook <laughs> and have a watch. Lastly, I loved the Rebecca Traster episode of Call Your Girlfriend, a brilliant podcast by two journalists in the States. I spoke earlier about uh, female social anger, which has really reached fever pitch over Brett Kavanagh. And this episode is a brilliant deep dive into historical female anger and how it played a role in activism, as chronicled in Rebecca, a prominent journalist in the US's new book, Good and Mad. She discusses how the way we tell the history of women's rights is that these activists were some kind of gentle, graceful, kind martyr. And actually, she says, that's discounting a major emotion that powered the suffragettes and Rosa Parks, and that is anger. Mm. As she says, and it made me laugh because it seems so obvious, Rosa Parks didn't just sit down on the bus because she was tired. Mm. She was fucking pissed off. Yeah. She was a well-known activist, married to another well-known activist who was collecting money in defence of the Scottsboro Boys, a group of black men falsely accused of raping two white women in 1931. She wasn't this timid, tired little woman. And I'm ashamed to say that I didn't know about her husband or the scope of her activist work before I listened to this episode. And Rebecca takes us through loads of other activists um, with similar stories that we don't hear told in history. It gave a new angle on female anger, the way we teach it, whether at home, which is something that Sarah Chamali told me when I interviewed her for my piece for the Sunday Times, is that we teach little girls nurturing qualities, passive qualities. We don't teach them anger and how to express it. And then also in school, in the way we recount history and the role women play in history. I'll share all the links to these podcast films, books and articles in the show notes. Press the drop down arrow on the episode description on iTunes or Acast to find our show notes with hyperlinks to all of those recommendations. I enjoyed that bit. I think maybe if we do that each week, people might start to find where the show notes are that I spend half an hour writing every single week. (laughs) What have you been enjoying this week, Dolly? I have watched 
all bar the final episode because it was on last night and I missed it of Wonderlust on the BBC. Oh yes, I watched a bit of an episode. I need to go back. Which is a six-part drama starring Tony Collette and Stephen McIntosh as a married couple with three children. They've been t together for a very long time and who are facing a crisis in their marriage and they're exploring non-monogamy to save it. So, full disclosure, I initially started watching this as a hate watch. Really? I think it sounds like the kind of thing you will write for telly. Well, I did. <laughs> Lauren, me and my writing partner, wrote up a pitch which was basically identical to this show. <laughs> Is that why you were hate watching it? Yeah, because everywhere we pitched it... The... Do you concede it's better than yours? Uh, I think it is, yeah, obviously. <laughs> because it's Nick Payne and he's amazing. But everywhere we pitched it, overwhelmingly, the feedback that we got was that it was too niche, it was um, rarefied, it was unbelievable, it wasn't accessible. And actually, after watching the show, I now completely understand what those fears were from, from producers. But when I found out that Nick Payne wrote it, who's an amazing, amazing writer, he is probably most famous for writing Constellations, which was a um, beautiful play that ran in the Western and on Broadway a few years ago. Uh, and he is just an incredibly, incre incredibly talented writer. I feel bad for Wanderlust because it's just, its rating figures have been obliterated by Bodyguard because I think that it, its ratings have been in decline. And I actually don't think it's because of the quality of the show. It's had very mixed reviews, but I... I have to say I switched off halfway through an episode. I will Did give you? it another chance. Um, everything was too stretched out. The opening scene was too long. Yeah, so here's the thing. I, I know think... that's a really basic bit of criticism, no. but if you lose, you know, yeah. your viewer, you might never get... Yeah. That's interesting that you said because it chimes in with my major criticism of it is that and initially I really didn't like the first two episodes and then I found myself completely hooked and I just kept going back I think that you can tell he's a playwright I think you can feel it's at moments it feels right. too or turd in a slightly laboured way so I think that that's why it can feel quite theatrical and that can be maybe not as compelling as the TV that we that we used to watch, mm -hmm. the dramas that we used mm -hmm. to kind of switching on every week. Uh, but I think Tony Collette is wonderful. Uh, I think the soundtrack is brilliant, and I think I feel vindicated because it's such a good premise. It's about their respective um, relationships and flings that they have, how that affects their relationship together, and uh, the respective relationships of all their teenage children and it is such fresh territory it's it's so hard to write a relationships show and feel like you're not watching rehashed archetypal plots and it it feels exciting and dark and current um in terms of the territory that it's traversing but the problem is is that it does still feel a little bit unbelievable i think even though even though it's not and the and the statistics for people looking into polyamory and practicing polyamory and non-monogamy are on the rise and I think it's going to become more and more accepted and practiced so maybe it it would make more sense and feel slightly more believable in five years time I still think it, it's a really really interesting premise for a show and I think it's worth watching 
I also would like all our listeners to know that Lisa Owen's book, Not Working, is currently, the radio adaptation of it is currently available on Radio 4 Extra and as always with the link in the show notes. And the reason I think it's really important everyone knows this is that Not Working is one of, I think, the best books of the last few years. I think it was published in 2016. Um, it's I've got so, it and I haven't read it yet. Oh my God, Pandora, you would love it. It's would I? So I, I can visualise the cover. Okay, all right, I'll read it. I give it to so many friends. It's about a woman who finds herself unemployed and it's about following the time that she spends not working and she has a bit of a kind of existential crisis. But it is one of the funniest books I've ever read and that's available now. It was the Radio 4 Book Book at Bedtime a couple of years ago and I just think it would work so well as an audio story and I just think... If, you know, so many high-low listeners say that they listen to us when they're doing the cleaning or when they're in the gym. And I think this is another great one to add to your audio library. Finally, always one to champion the oldies. I would like to flag a new writing prize called Christopher Bland Prize, which is open to writers age 50 and over. And there is a £10,000 prize. Obviously, it's in memory of... Christopher Bland, who died in 2017, who chaired the publishing house Canongate. I think it's really important that these competitions are open for people in slightly later life. I think one of the amazing things about writing is it's one of the few professions where you are valued more and more the older you get. You can only become, in my opinion, a better writer the more experience you have, the more stories you have to tell, the more wisdom that you accrue, the more relationships you have, the more pain you've been through. I think that can only ever serve you well as a writer and yet we are Even when it comes to writing, we are a culture that is obsessed with youth and its currency. And um, as my friend, the writer, Laura Jane Williams said, we need to have less lists celebrating 30 under 30 and many more lists celebrating 50 over 50. I'd quite like a 40 under 40 so that I've got something to (laughs) aspire. Actually, no, 50 under 50 would be great. And then I've got 90 over 50 we need. Well, I want 50 under 50 so that I've got 19 years to try and grind my way there. Crawl, <laughs> limp it to the, to the line. Well, maybe there's a world where we can have both. Uh, but I agree, a world with both would be I great. Think, I think it's... Um, there are so many... Writing is such a luxury for so many people. Yeah. It doesn't give you a regular salary. Uh, it takes an enormous amount of time. It's a privilege for a lot of people. Certainly for me, it was... You know, I had a day job for many, many years and it was the thing that I did at the weekends and in the evenings. I think, you know, it is very possible that you could be someone who has to get on with making money, providing for a family, running a home, and you get to 50, 60, 70, 80, and realise that you've got so many stories to tell, Mm. or that you've got this great passion for writing that you've never been able to fulfil. So I think it's such a good opportunity, and I don't know how many Hilo listeners we have over 50, a few I hope, Um, but if you're a listener who wants to write or you've got friends over 50 or family members, a parent maybe, who you think they have stories to tell or things that they want to put on the page, um, I thought this would be a great thing to let them know about because I don't know how many other opportunities we have and I hope it marks the beginning of many more. So as usual, that link will be in the show notes. The Hilo comes from Warner Brothers and the film everyone is talking about, A Star is Born. 
A Star is Born marks Bradley Cooper's directorial debut as he stars alongside Lady Gaga in her first ever leading role in a major motion picture. The film, which tells the complex love story between two passionate artistic souls, has received a raft of five-star reviews to date, with Empire describing Bradley Cooper's performance as staggering and Time Out describing Lady Gaga as a revelation. A Star is Born features powerful, original music written by Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, alongside a selection of incredibly talented artists, which include Mark Ronson, and all vocals were recorded live during the filming. I've been compulsively re-watching the film's trailer. It's sort of like a cinematic experience in itself. Um, it's completely amazing, and it's made me so excited to see A Star is Born. I've heard that their chemistry is sizzling, and from the brief soupçon that I've had with the trailer, I would agree, I can't wait to watch it. It's in cinemas now across the UK. Thank you so much to Warner Brothers and A Star Is Born. Breaking news from the love rattery. <laughs> this week, the comedian Sean Walsh, currently a contestant on Strictly Come Dancing, was caught in a passionate embrace. God, I love slipping into the parlance of tabloides. It feels only right on the subject. With his dancing partner, Katya Jones. Both Sean and Katya, who is married to fellow Strictly professional Neil Jones, tweeted an apology. But it is the Twitter statement of Sean's long-term actor-girlfriend Rebecca Humphreys that has got everyone's attention. Hello there, my name is Rebecca Humphreys and I am not a victim. I wasn't sure whether to respond to events from the past week. She's referring to the picture of Sean and Katya kissing. But I feel the narrative has missed a couple of crucial elements that I would like to clear up. It's incredibly good of Sean and Katya to apologise in the media. I have received nothing other than the support of my family, friends and a host of strangers on the internet who all wanted to make sure I was okay. What I have also kindly received are many offers to sell my side of the story, but I would prefer for it to be on my terms. Those pictures were taken on October the 3rd. It was my birthday. I was alone at home when Sean texted at 10pm saying the two of them were going for one innocent drink. We spoke and I told him, not for the first time, that his actions over the past three weeks led me to believe something inappropriate was going on. He aggressively and repeatedly called me a psycho, nuts, mental, as he has done countless times throughout our relationship when I've questioned his inappropriate, hurtful behaviour. But this whole business has served to remind me that I'm a strong, capable person who is now free and no victim. I have a voice and will use it by saying this to any woman out there who deep down feels worthless and trapped with a man they love. Believe in yourself and your instincts. It's more than lying, it's controlling. Tell some very close friends who, if they're anything like my wonderful network, will swoop in and take care of the logistics and you. It's important also to recognise that in these situations, those who hold power over you are insecure and fragile and their need for control comes from a place of vulnerability. I think it certainly does in Sean's case. Despite everything, I hope he gets what he wants from this. I'm not sorry I took the cat though. Love, Rebecca. <laughs> the statement is all anyone's talking about. That's also tabloidies from you. They're also <laughs> talking about what they're going to have for lunch and who left skid marks in the loo and what's on at the cinema. You've outfoxed me, though. There was a very heated debate on this morning between Vanessa Feltz, Holly Willoughby, Philip Schofield and sex and relationship expert Louise Vandervelde. I mean, can you imagine if that was your relationship and you just turned on this morning? It must have been such a head yeah, for that poor yeah. girl. Uh, with Philip Schofield in particular passionately defending Rebecca Humphreys. Janet Street Porter has publicly told Rebecca to get a grip. 
Rebecca has been praised by Sam Claflin, Mylene Class, Stacey Solomon, and even Debbie McGee couldn't resist sticking her oar in. She criticised the fact Sean and Katya had had to apologise, saying, there's been so many footballers that have done far worse than this, and were they made to make an apology? It really is a private thing. I just feel sad for everybody, but I think it will be forgotten in a couple of days. After a day of crisis talks between the BBC senior executives, Walsh and his management, it was announced that the comedian will return on Saturday night's show to dance with his professional partner, Katya. Pandora, this really has been such a massive story for something that is sadly fairly common in show business. What are your thoughts? I have to say the calibre of your quoting there was not up with its normal. <laughs> Sorry. Debbie McGee. I know, I just couldn't you resist. you got all showbiz. I know, I thought it was just old school showbiz. It was just the great and the good just coming forward to just make a comment on this relationship. I found it bizarre. I don't think I quite realised how meaningful Rebecca's statement was the first time I read it. The second time I read it, I thought, yes, why is female behaviour dismissed as psychotic? It really taps into that anger thing. And then I realised after a bit of time that she was talking about emotional abuse because she suspected something was going on, and it obviously was, but he'd, as the Americans like to say, emotionally gaslit her instead. I applaud Rebecca, who received messages like the one I read in the Evening Standard last night, actually, that said, I saw him shouting at you last year, and I'm so glad you've said this and left him there have been so many affairs and so many breakups over the years on Strictly Come Dancing it's a trope of Strictly contestants and dancing partners get together celebrity relationships break up everyone loses a bit of weight and ends up in panto within three years of the show finishing (laughs) three years one year (laughs) there must be something different about this particular story that's made it a kind of national incident and I think the thing that's most powerful here is the fact that Rebecca has shared her side of the story truthfully she hasn't sold it to a magazine she hasn't hidden away she's expressed her experience and more and more that's the thing that I think is bringing revolution and people are increasingly ready to hear It's the whole premise of Me Too. Rebecca's statement came at such a potent time, I think, which is a time where women are no longer ashamed to speak out and others rise up and join them and say, I believe you, I don't think you're crazy. I don't even know if it's belief, because as we see in America, a lot of people don't, despite how low the false accusations of abuse are, which New York Magazine put recently at 0.05%. That's the number of false accusations. But more, it's her having the opportunity. Rebecca's an actor and she has a profile, but she isn't hugely famous. She's not the one on Strictly. But through a tweet, she was able to reach a much larger audience than she would have been if she'd gone with whatever print media outlet approached her for a bit of tittle-tattle. What's interesting is... People cheat. It doesn't make someone evil. It doesn't mean they should be vilified. We are all human and we all make mistakes. I actually think a large part of it is public moralising, though. Oh, do you? I find it slightly mad that a lot of people are saying he should step down because he snogs his dance partner. That is the part of the story I have no time for. The emotional abuse element, good for fucking her. But there are also people, I think, missing that part and going, he cheated on her on her birthday. As if cheating, especially on someone's birthday, isn't something for better or worse that's pretty bloody every day. Do I like cheating? No. But do I think the reaction we have to a celebrity cheating is at odds with our reactions to other world views and world news? Yes, I do. That's interesting. I didn't think so much of it was about him cheating. Because as I said, this this that happens all the time mm. in Strictly. I don't think that's what's got everyone so riled up. I think it's the account in Rebecca's statement of a man who's done some serious long-term gaslighting and a woman who finally feels vindicated that she wasn't going, going crazy. I was in a relationship like that. It was the worst mistake of my life and truly is 
one of the very few regrets that I have in my life where the man I was with constantly made me feel like I was the one ruining the relationship. He was doing nothing wrong. I was going mad. And I think it's a very, very common experience. And I think that's the reason so many people have come out in support of her because so many people know what it's like to be mistreated in a relationship in a very, very subtle way over a long period of time, then come out the other side and realise it is a kind of subtle, slow-burning form of mental torture. It's one of the reasons Holly Bourne's book, How Do You Like Me Now, was such a powerful and well-loved hit, I think. That was a brilliant book. I agree, it's a specific type of torture. I think we need to be careful what we call emotional abuse, though. I think women suspecting something is up, man denying it, and then man dumping is a tale a lot of people have experienced. I think I did in almost all my relationships before my husband. I feel a bit like when we were talking about cat person, and I don't want to conflate the two. I don't want to conflate, like, bad relationship etiquette with emotional abuse which is obviously something that Rebecca's talking about and I know you're not doing that Mm. but I don't I really don't want to see in the media them become merged I felt like when um that babe.net piece came out with Aziz Ansari like it 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 you know the message got kind of lost a bit what Rebecca is saying is very much I think meant to be seen as emotional abuse, I think that is what she's speaking about. I think Holly Bourne's book definitely nudges towards, but yeah, I'm cautious that we keep the behaviours separate when we're discussing it. And I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll see if, if the way it's covered does that, I suppose. Daisy Buchanan wrote for The Pool this summer, Women's Aid, as well as retweeting Humphreys' statement today, released a statement advising that a partner questioning your memory of events, trivialising your thoughts or feelings and turning things around to blame you can be part of a pattern of gaslighting and emotional abuse. I don't know a woman who hasn't been in a relationship with someone who hasn't, at the very least, minimised her feelings. Calling a woman crazy is an extremely efficient way of silencing her. In a world where a man's words are valued over a woman's, It's better to be bad than mad. When the person closest to you tells you that your experiences and reactions aren't valid because they're not real, your universe becomes a melting Dali painting and you start to question everything from your memory to your sense of self-worth. I like that line, it's better Mm. to be bad than mad. I don't want to silence her or any woman, but I do slightly long for the time of no public laundry washing. Where is the garbo intrigue of yore? And I actually said something like that to you this week and you said back to me quite rightly think how miserable they all were the garbos and the munros maybe they'd be happier if they had twitter do you think tippy hedron would have escaped alfred hitchcock's seven-year contract where she was contracted only to work for him but after she negged him romantically he refused to cast her in any of her his films so her entire career dried up do you think she'd have managed to escape that contract with twitter i don't i don't know specifically that but i do think we have to be wary of that thought of particularly when you look at monroe or someone like judy yeah. garland the facade that they felt they had to keep up of uh, you know drove them to their death of glamour killed them yeah. yeah god it's quite weinsteiny behavior from hitchcock when you think about it yeah totally yeah i'm so surprised strictly have decided to keep him on after this has been so public I wonder if they're going to address it in those... You know, they do those rehearsal VTs. You're not a Strictly fan, are you? They definitely won't. No, I do know what you mean. I'm not a fan, but it does always seem to be on. Um, I don't think they will. I wonder if the audience will boo. My God. I wonder if he'll do a mea culpa on the show. I mean, these questions are the exact reason they are keeping him on, isn't it? Because it means it's such good publicity to have that 
that kind of backstory bubbling away underneath the show. I think they will have had a lot of talks about whether to axe him. I don't know if I'm surprised that they didn't axe him. That's more tabloidy. Who ever says that? I don't think he'll do a mea culpa. I hope not. Oh, that would be... I don't know. I, I don't think that's the right place for it. He hasn't put anything out on Twitter the last time I looked since Rebecca made her statement. As they say in the biz, Dolly, the show must go on. Well, needless to say, I will not be tuning into his foxtrot. And I implored and stand by you, Rebecca Humphreys. And we're on to another story with a subtext of abuse. Soz, guys, but also not soz, because this is the stuff we're talking about. And one would add for good reason. And it would be nice, actually, to not have so much of it to talk about. This week, Johnny Depp covered British GQ, looking like the smouldering sex god he has been for all of our adult lives. He's now aged 55, believe it or not. It was an exclusive interview, and the cover line was an outlaw talks. Obviously, the outlaw took on a particular piquancy when he settled out of court for allegedly beating his ex-wife, Amber Heard. It's a sensational interview by Jonathan Heath. Johnny Depp doesn't hold back, except when talking about drugs. There's scant little about those. Uh, And we'll get to some of the content later. But first, instincts, before we get to the meat of the piece, Dolly. Is it okay to celebrate Johnny Depp on the cover of a glossy magazine? Do we need to let bygones be bygones now they've settled? Initially, I was pretty outraged by the mere idea of GQ giving space to the multi-thousand word interview with an alleged abuser, full stop. But then when I read it, I felt like I understood more why they felt it was appropriate. This is a quote from Jonathan Heath that comes near the end of of the article. Let me be clear, this is not a piece of investigative reporting, it is merely a snapshot. A chance to sit down and talk to a person of immense interest and talent who has, it must be noted, brought joy to millions of film lovers all over the world ever since he moved from Kentucky to LA and a friend Nicolas Cage told him he should go and see his acting agent. This isn't a piece claiming to know with any authority about what happened between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard in May 2016 or at any other time between the pair and private. All I wanted to do was come to Depp and ask him to give his side of the story, which up until now has not been properly heard. The thing I have more of a problem with is the way the interview is framed. I feel incredibly uncomfortable about the fact they've put him on the front cover, styled him like a rock star, called him an outlaw, dwelled on the details of his supposedly Hellraiser existence and appearance, shot him behind a bar looking like Keith Richards and basically glorified what are very serious accusations and turned them into a sort of hackneyed caricature that that kind of, you know, that gives him this kind of tragic, exciting, dark edge. And I think it semi-excuses what he's been accused of. I think there have been lots of accusations of that ilk. Johnny Depp was famously very good friends with Hunter S. Thompson, who was known for this mad, drug-driven, gonzo journalism. And our brilliant sub-editor, Anna, did say that the piece by Jonathan Heath had an element of the gonzo journalism about it. And there was, and there is often in pieces about Johnny Depp, whether subconscious or conscious, this idea that he is a bit of a Hunter S. Thompson figure. You know, at one point, Jonathan Heath finds Johnny Depp's typewriter with his novel sticking out the top of it. And as Anna says, it's all got that kind of, mm. that style threaded throughout it. But as you say, that this is someone who has been accused of beating his wife. Can't believe I have to say this at British GQ, but being accused of domestic violence does not make you cool, tweet a journalist, Anna Leskovich. It does not make you an outlaw. It does not make you a sexy, conflicted hero. It does not mean you know torment. It does not lead you to the sordid, beautiful truth. 
Johnny Depp is not a movie character. He is a real person accused of much distress, disorder and domestic violence, added writer Hannah Flint. Stop dramatising his behaviour as though he's some sort of misunderstood hero. He's not. Mm, I kind of agree. And I must say, Jonathan Heath is at pains to point out the pathetic in him as well. And I think it is a good, well-observed interview. And I think the man he captures is not one who he thinks deserves our adoration or even pity. But I don't think the way the interview was presented from the outside was thoughtful or intelligent. At first, I did think, I wonder if we're missing the nuance a bit by not allowing or being able to see problematic individuals to cover magazines. I still want to read an interview with Johnny Depp. If I worked at GQ, I would have also accepted that pitch. The magazine were offered him by a high net worth PR firm, Hawthorne, who basically do crisis management for big companies and very, very rich people. And they make no bones about the fact that that is the avenue with which the interview has arrived at GQ. Johnny Depp's reputation is at rock bottom, that much is clear, and Hawthorne asked GQ to give him the opportunity to talk, not so much to set the record straight, as you say, they very clearly say in the piece that that is not the agenda there. They are not party to whether he is or isn't lying or telling the truth. They more want to relay a uh, different story, I suppose, and they do let him lie bare his own magic or madness, whichever you'd like to observe. There's a lot about how his ex-business managers of 18 years screwed him over, a lot in general about how people apparently screwed him over, Here's an excerpt of the piece where Jonathan Heath confronts Depp over his reputation and Depp responds because I don't think it would be fair to say that they avoid the allegations as the magazine doesn't and they gave him a lot more airtime than the Times magazine did recently in an interview with Johnny Depp and Alice Cooper about their new super band and the newspaper largely avoided any criticism for that piece. The message is loud and clear as to what Depp believes went down with his long-term management and business partners. I wonder... Does he worry about his reputation, his legacy, not least in regards to women? Is he concerned that so much of what has been put out in the press, so much of the scandal has caused an irreversible erosion of his good name? Or does he simply not worry because, as he said, he never wanted to be some pedestal or claim to be a role model, a Cinderella figure? Later, he says on the same page, I feel like I have to broach the subject with Depp. Does the actor consider himself a violent man? An aggressive man? Can he lose his temper or is he prone to if intoxicated? And then Johnny Depp then, you know, denies X, Y, Z. The thing that hurt me, he says, is the treachery, the betrayal of being presented as something that you're really as far away from as you could possibly get, you know. Yeah, there's not avoidance. No, there's not avoidance, but Jonathan, he also does state that he's been flown out to France under strict instruction from Johnny Depp's people that... Johnny Depp would not be talking about his divorce. So I think it's a testament to what a good journalist he is and what an ego Johnny Depp has on him that he does end up talking about it. Heath comments early on that there's a kind of, he observes a dichotomy with Johnny Depp. He says he wants to spill his guts, but he's resistant to looking at cause and effect, which I think is code for. He wants to talk about himself. He wants to pontificate on his side of the story, but he won't take responsibility. So I wonder how the interview would have read and if it would have felt more like a puff piece for Depp had Jonathan Heath not probed him on the allegations and he responded. I think what the main issue is and the reason perhaps why the Times avoided criticism and GQ has received more, that said there are a ton of people on Twitter who adore Depp and adore that piece, is the criticism for the word outlaw yes, on the cover, which makes you just go when yeah. you consider that his ex-wife accused him of domestic abuse. It either feels provocative or tone deaf. It's, yeah, it's I would say yeah. the former. 
I oh, know you much, think the former. I know how much time is spent over cover lines. I think it comes off as the latter, but I think it's the former. That said, I can't imagine Cosmopolitan putting a husband beater on the cover who settled out of court with the outlaw written underneath. I mean, can you imagine? Mm. Martin Daubney and Piersy Morgan would have a shit fit. That's so, so true, and I hadn't thought of that gender flip, but I actually don't think there's a world in which you'd ever see a woman accused of abuse doled up and looking like some sexy rock chick on the front of a big consumer glossy full stop. I think they would think that was a nail in the coffin of their publication. It would be seen as such a huge risk. I read this comment from Katie Ghost, chief executive of domestic violence charity Women's Aid, who framed it really well for me, actually, and I definitely found it interesting as a journalist. Journalists aren't responsible for passing judgment in cases of domestic abuse. Only a court of law can do that. However, they do have a responsibility to use their influence for the greater good. The media has a responsibility not to fuel this backlash against the Me Too movement, but recognise the unequal power dynamics in these cases and make sure alleged victims' voices are heard as loud and clear as the powerful men they put in their pages and then I thought do you know what would have been cooler is if Amber Heard was given the cover interview I think that would have been a cooler move actually I think hearing Johnny Depp's side of events isn't the big crime here I think it's obsessing over the the sustained fake mysticism around him that turns alleged criminal behavior into some sort of iconicism even if he's not guilty this is the thing that I think we have to come back to it's still, as you say, the framing. Yeah. You know, if even if he's not guilty, like, it, don't use the term outlaw or... Uh, it's very difficult. We, we are in a time when we have to listen to all women. That isn't the same as believing all women. When a case has been settled out of court, how do we move on from that? How do we represent them in the pages of our magazine? I think maybe we're still learning about yeah, how we... Yeah because there's going to be a lot more of this. There's going to be a lot more women telling their stories because they are more empowered to tell their stories. And then we need to think about how do we deal with that? We're not sentencing and we can't sentence anyone accused of abuse of any kind to anonymity and no life or profession ever again. That's as impractical as it is impossible. So we have to think about those next steps. As Jonathan writes in the piece, it's not a piece of investigative reporting. The idea was not to conclude if Johnny Depp is or isn't guilty and or a terrible person. But the pictures are quite swoony. Black and white, smoking, tats out. The context of the interview and the pictures is jarring. I wonder if they considered approaching Amber Heard for her side of the story or for her response. It has quickly turned legal. Amber Heard's lawyers responded immediately to the piece. If GQ had done even a basic investigation into Mr Depp's claims, it would have quickly realised that his statements are entirely untrue. Mr Depp has blatantly disregarded the party's confidentiality agreement and yet has refused to allow Miss Heard to respond to his baseless allegations despite repeated requests that she be allowed to do so. Mr Depp is shamefully continuing his cycle psychological abuse of Miss Heard, who has attempted to put a very painful part of her life firmly in her past. One need only to look at the physical evidence to draw the proper conclusion. Depp's lawyer Adam Waldman there responded in turn with a statement that read, in his GQ interview, Mr Depp is simply defending himself against Miss Heard's lingering false abuse accusations. Johnny Depp is the abuse victim. In UK court proceedings next month, we will be submitting clear evidence of the violence committed serially against him by Miss Heard and the serious injuries that he suffered. Waldman added, we will also submit overwhelming evidence that Miss Heard faked the abuse allegations against Mr Depp 
The only shameful psychological abuse stems from Miss Heard's continuing, cynical manipulation of the important hashtag MeToo movement and its real victims that she has used to pursue her own ends. What a total mess. I'm amazed that the lawyer has chosen to be so vocal and so explicit. Both the sets of lawyers yeah. have been very explicit, haven't they, in their vocality. The rest of the 8,000-word piece, which is pretty bonkers, includes Depp accusing Disney of homophobia. He said they asked him if Captain Jack Sparrow was gay, and he also reveals that he was paid over $35 million for Pirates 5. Insane sum. What other mad bits caught your interest, Dolly? I can't believe I didn't know about the Winona Forever tattoo that was changed to Wino Forever after he broke up with Winona Ryder. Folklore, that! I didn't know that. Him living in some French compound that's as large as a as a village, yeah. I found kind of mad too. I think the whole depiction of him didn't seem to me like an eccentric rock star living outside of the law. It seemed to me like someone losing the plot. <laughs> Thank you very much for everyone who listened to the Hilo. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It helps boost us in the charts and helps other people find us. You can email the Hilo, the Hilo show at gmail.com or tweet us at the Hilo show. Bye-bye. Bye.